Hello, I'm co-host Brooklyn Arroyo, and this is 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Juan Calderon, PhD in Human Genetics. Good morning, Juan. Good morning, Brooklyn. How are you? Good, good. So before we get too deep into any of the discussions today, I think that I'd like to say a lot of people have a lot of fascination around human genetics, and I'd love to just hear about why you decided to pursue this in your PhD. Well, that that is a that is a great question. Uh, I remember being fascinated with the with the novel findings uh, that genetics in general and human genetics in particular uh, were having uh, by the time I was in high school. Uh, and this would be just for for everyone's um, information around the nineties, uh, late nineties. Uh, I graduated from high school, and and I decided that I uh, I was fascinated by by everything that was happening around human genetics, and so I took my undergrad, and and it was an easy decision later to pursue higher education in human genetics. Mm-hmm. So when when finally going down this path post high school, did you find that it was just a straightforward? You went from high school to undergrad to to just all throughout your academic career, or did you have some work experience in there? What did that look like? It, it actually, it, it was not a straightforward path for me because I had a an, an inner uh, conflict mm-hmm. in which I was fascinated by genetics, but I was kind of avoiding uh, interaction with patients and I, I I was not sure that I was ready to engage into a clinical setting in order to do or to study genetics mm-hmm. uh, so I uh, that was sort of an uh, a good resource or a good notion to have in order to to get away from med school for example so I then went ahead and did a, an undergrad in molecular biotechnology mm-hmm. And my exposure to genetic was rather limited, you know, to a couple of undergrad courses, but I, I also had uh, many other courses, more from the engineering part and some others were only about biology, but I also had zoology and, and plant biology and other, other classes that um, even though they were not my primary, you know, focus, um, they were good for having a, a an overall background in biology, which later proved useful. And then uh, very later on when I did, I I had to do a thesis work, an experimental thesis work in order to graduate. And I ended up working with with a a physician uh, that was uh, at the time studying celiac disease, um, gluten intolerance and so on. And so I I ended up uh, finishing my undergrad working only with neonatal and pediatric patients uh, mm-hmm. that were undergoing diagnosis for celiac disease. So even though I worked kind of 
stubbornly so and hard to avoid patients, I ended up uh, finishing my undergrad working exclusively with patients and with kids, which, mm-hmm. which is fascinating, but also challenging to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I'd like to hear more about that work that you were doing within your your graduate work, whether it was with your patients or not, what were some of those experiences like for you? And then, um, so I I graduated and I I got my first job in a human genetics lab here in Chile, um, and and that was kind of you know after after graduating I wanted to find a job that was not only this nine to five um, sort of easy money kind of thing, but but also that that put me in track to explore what would come next. And it was a very, a very good setup. Uh, I would have to interact with patients uh, with with a genetic disorder that involved um, problems in the cardiovascular system, uh, which I, I kind of knew at that time that was uh, what I wanted to study further. Uh, and but I also was um, spending large hours in the bench, so I did a lot of bench work. But I also had to engage with patients every now and then, so it was kind of a very good exposure. Uh, you know, to to make up my mind in order to see what would come next. Uh, but then I moved to Hopkins uh, for grad school, and I started to work with Dr. Hal Deet, uh, which um, had, you know, he has a trajectory of pretty much 30 plus years working with animal models for cardiovascular disorders. So this was a novel experience for me. I had never uh, worked with mice in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it was it was a fantastic experience in that regard too. So I kind of stepped away from patients for a while, um, and then some other things happened that I ended up coming back home uh, and work with patients. I, I work exclusively with patients these days. Yes. Well, it seems like the thing you were avoiding you now <clears throat> regularly. <laughs> But- <laughs> yes, yes. I always tell the story when I talk to to uh, kids from high school because I I like to do that and I usually go and visit high schools at least you know four to six times a year and I always tell them no matter how much you avoid certain things things are gonna come back to you when you 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 know you you feel passion for them and you like them so it, it's good yeah definitely so within your first work. After your PhD, did you feel that there was a time when you weren't sure of what, how the environment looked because you had been in academia for so long? Or do you feel that there was a transition period from, from schooling to, to now your career? So I underwent uh, um, you know, a difficult transition, not because I walked away from academia. I, I am still in academia in a, in a local university here in Chile, but rather because I, I left uh, Hopkins uh, to come back to my home country. And that transition was difficult. Uh, I was used to this, you know, world-class uh, research ecosystem in which, you know, you had a good good reference uh, to go to every time and you were close to everyone uh, and here I'm uh, geographically a little far away from everything uh, it, so it definitely was a transition more on that regard on, on the practicalities 
of doing research back home um, rather than, than, than a new environment. But, uh, you know, academia is a complex world. Uh, it has many, many advantages, and it also has uh, some, you know, oddities that, that could definitely work better, and not only in Chile, but throughout the world. Uh, but I embrace it. I like it. Uh, it. It gives me room for doing some teaching that I like a lot. Uh, it definitely gives me room to keep doing my research, working with patients. With uh, as I as I said before, uh, so I guess it it it's a good combo for for being where I am right now. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned how you moved from Hopkins and now you're back in your home country of Chile. Was that always the plan for you, or what were some of the factors that went into contributing you moving back to your home country? This is always a question that that um, you know definitely goes back to some personal you know things that were happening in my life back then. First of all, I went to the U.S. Uh, with a with a wonderful scholarship. Uh, supported both by the U.S. government and Chilean government. And this is the Fulbright program. You probably heard about this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Fulbright program is, by definition, an exchange program. So it, it it makes you come back to your home country to basically give back and pay forward or however you want to phrase it. And I was very happy. I, this, I always knew that this was the plan. Mm-hmm. Um not to not to say that I was not tempted to stay in the U.S. I had a wonderful experience, not only at Hopkins in the academic perspective, but also in a, in a personal life. Uh, I left a wonderful group of friends and colleagues, uh, but the plan was to come back here uh, at, at all times. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so, and you did mention how you felt that that was, there was a transition period there as there would be for any big move like that. But career-wise in general, do you feel that there was decisions that you made to do the work that you're doing now? Do you think that there were other pathways that tempted you? Or was this career work that you're doing now and working within your academic setting or with patients was always what you wanted to do and, and, and you knew that's the path that you wanted to go down to? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I I think that it doesn't have a unique answer because I have had to change paths, uh, maybe orientations uh, in, in what I do. So when I came back from Hopkins, I came back as as uh, as you could you could ask every graduating PhD student, and they they probably feel the same way. So I came back feeling that I really mastered my discipline. And I, I was really good at, you know, with mouth work and experimental techniques. And then I came back here and discovered that it was a little too expensive for me to start my work again, in, you know, doing the exact same things that I was doing. And I also found out that uh, for the diseases that I study, there was no work being done with patients and patients were really uh, orphaned. Uh, from 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 the clinical and research perspective, so I had to kind of uh, make up my mind in in the in, or in regard to what I thought was prioritary for me was not necessarily something that I was going to be able to implement properly. And at the other uh, on the other hand, there were 
you know, higher priorities from the patient perspective that I felt that I would be very happy trying to, to, to put up with or to respond to, mm-hmm. right? So that was a transition that uh, it was sort of easy to do in the way that, um, you know, I started to get in touch with patient groups and, and you know, getting to know their realities and understanding that not everything had to be done with bench work um, and so on and so forth. So it was a good transition. I'm very happy uh, now looking back, uh, probably back then uh, it was it had uh, its you know tough moments, but I'm I'm happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those tough moments usually help us get even deeper into the work that we're doing and and into our careers. So yeah, yeah, I, yes, yes, mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> so I would like to pry more at, at some of those obstacles that you faced, whether in the beginning of your career or throughout your PhD. What were some of the main obstacles that you have within your within your life that you think would help other people on this journey? Wow, uh, that's a, that's a good question. I first of all, I think that in academia and especially in grad graduate school, <clears throat> I think that no one teaches you to stop being your worst enemy. So we all read about imposter syndrome and how it may affect you. And, you know, you think that just by reading about it, you're prepared for it. And I don't think uh, that is true. Uh, I definitely was my worst enemy at the beginning. Uh, I also comment, and I, I talk to my friends from Hopkins very often, and I always uh, we 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 remind this remember these moments and we're very we laugh at it but it was tough um, to get to Hopkins you know this huge institution I had never been in such a large mm-hmm. uh, research devoted place before so everything was large uh, you know lectures where you know I would I would share the auditorium with you know two hundred people. Uh, med school, grad school, everyone is there and everyone is, you know, on the edge and on their toes. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transition. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, I, I also had to work, uh, you know, getting, I, I had to, um, to be in peace with my English level, you know, for, for, for those of us with, English as a second language, um, it was always tough. I, I I always got stressed, and I remember, and my friends remind me of this very often. Uh, I remember that there were days on the week where I would I would reject going out for a beer just because I didn't want to speak in English anymore. I was just so exhausted, and so that type of things, you know, kind of go against you as much as you let them go against you. Um, so. You know, once I started to manage those things and to really enjoy being where I was, um, you know, things would would, would start to to work out very smoothly. And I I can tell you that I enjoyed it very much, even though the first part and the landing into grad school at Hopkins was, of course, a little rocky. Do you feel that um, within your experience of your, you know, attaining your PhD, you found that there were many other students who were international students or 
English was their second language and you were able to develop some form of a community or did it feel a little isolating within your experience of having English as your second language? A little bit of both. I mean, I, I got the sense of community from international students, but I also was very uh, militant in trying to make friends uh, with people outside my comfort zone. And so I would avoid, for example, Chileans. Mm. Uh, I would, I would, I never tried very actively to find them. Not because I don't like my my home country or anything. It was just that I I thought, well, I'm here and I don't need to get better with my Spanish. I really need, you know, I I I just need to, you know, to engage other people and get to know other cultures. I already know my home country and my fellow people, so. I kind of took that approach, not to say that I didn't get to hang out with them every now and then. Uh, I used to play soccer with a with a lovely group of, of people from Peru and Colombia and the States and Italy and Europe in general. So my approach was, you know, getting to know everyone for, from everywhere mm -hmm. uh, rather than getting, getting together with Chileans or with Latinos uh, as my primary uh, group of support. And I'm very happy that I did so. Mm -hmm. I think that is definitely a great approach just because something that's come up in many other podcasts is one of the most important parts of academia is meeting people, not just the learning, but all the people that you meet and all the perspectives that you see. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing and, and Maybe you could explain to the audience and whoever's listening to this podcast what your day-to-day -day looks like and whether you have the same day all over again or each day is a little different. What does that look like for you? Wonderful. Um, so first of all, I do uh, anything between one full morning or two mornings a week of teaching throughout the year. So my days... Uh, my work days are always um, or have always uh, a teaching component or getting in touch with an invited colleague to give the lecture or preparing the lecture myself and so on and so forth and being in front with the students and and that is that is an active component of my of my um, work uh, days or work week um, and then uh, in regard to to research. Um, I still like to do some bench work, so I try to, at least a couple of week, a couple of days a week, uh, try to engage with technicians and students that are on the bench, um, just to to either teach them a technique or just to practice with them or you know set up a new technique on the bench. I'd like to 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 keep myself connected to that type of work, mm -hmm. and then uh, you know in academia there's a lot of you know, grant writing and, um, you know, ad admin work that you have to do in order to keep yourself, um, you know, in the loop. So it's always, you know, several hours in the computer um, and, and, and in front of the word processor and so on and so forth. So, I, I, you know, all of us in academia, I, I say, would agree that uh, there's never enough time to do benchmark, never enough time to do all the writing you have to do or to write the papers you have to publish. But overall, it it 
it's a balance in which I have still time to drop my kid off at school and pick her up mm -hmm. um, and, and do some other, you know, personal interests that I have outside academia. And then for the first part of your question, I think I can say, uh, I can summarize my research in trying to understand uh, the genetic component of um, cardiovascular diseases that affect the normal architecture of the aorta. And so we have this uh, group of genetic disorders, monogenic uh, disorders that cause the aorta to be um, structurally and functionally weak. So it, it, in these patients, the aorta tends to dilate and dissect. And when the aorta dissects and tears, patients uh, are at risk of death. Uh, and so we try to understand uh, why, even though these patients can share a diagnosis and can share a pathogenic genetic variant uh, that predisposes them to develop this disorder, they can actually manifest all the characteristics of this disorder uh, at different times throughout life or actually can show or not show uh, manifestations at all. So that is a fascinating question for me and for my group because, um, again, even though they share a clinical diagnosis, they can show up as completely different diseases if you see the patient as, a, as, a, as an entity. So that's fascinating for me, and uh, I, I hope to keep working on this. <laughs> that is fascinating. <laughs> so what advice would you have for, for anyone else who is working within their PhD or just graduated and is hoping to stay in academia? Well, let's go in order. So for 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 people undergoing their, their graduate school experience, I think uh, that first of all, uh, I'd say to take it one day at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important for them to keep balance. Uh, we always get excited and you can easily find, find yourself going to the lab or to your research place uh, from Monday through Monday without taking time off. And I say that even though you can have some patches and you know phases of your PhD work where you actually have to do that and you have to put up some extra hours, uh, always keep in mind that you need to keep that balance and to keep your mental health um, you know, in check at all times. That's one. The second, uh, don't think you have to do everything alone, collaborate. Uh, share your experience, share your results, show your data to people that are going to give you meaningful feedback um, and actually selfless uh, feedback, right? Um, you know, make sure that you have a good relationship with your mentor. Make sure you find yourself good mentors. Um, mentoring is not, the, is not the same as supervising. I mm -hmm. think that we don't have that discussion very often in academia. And you can have actually a great supervisor that provides you with all the means you need, money and reagents or, you know, support your research and actually not being good mentors. I think that uh, that is not trivial and we don't talk about it very often. Mm -hmm. And then for, for, for after grad school, I said that we need to keep our eyes open for everything that comes to us. So, whether you want to look for postdocs, 
Uh, again, you're going to need good mentors and good advice from people that, that have always or that have had that experience before. Uh, if you want to, to switch, you know, from academia to industry, uh, there, there will be, as usual, pros and cons in regard to every decision. Uh, and then if you want to stay in academia, which was your, your, your question, I think that, uh, again, you need to find a place where you can actually develop uh, and do uh, exactly what you want. So there, there are institutions that are more prone to research rather than teaching. There are some others where they're going to ask you for a teaching portfolio and a teaching philosophy statement. And I think those things are valuable. You just need to make sure that you're doing something that you have passion for, because then if you don't, uh, then you start feeling that you're not very happy from Monday to Friday. And I don't think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I could keep talking about it, but I, I think those are my primary uh, pieces of advice. <laughs> Well, those were great pieces of advice. I especially appreciated, and I do agree that it's not something that's talked about enough, that mentorship and, and supervising are, are not the same thing and and can exist outside of each other. So I think that is a really important point. Yeah, definitely. I think that academia is lacking uh, in that aspect. Uh, and I hope that we fix it sooner rather than later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So for our last question that we ask of all of our interviewees on this podcast is sort of the grand finale of all of it. And it is mm -hmm. what inspires you right now? Wow, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, just on, on top of my mind, I would say that what inspires me is uh, to help from my laboratory, from the bench, my patients to feel supported and uh, important to, to make them feel that someone cares for what they're going through. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that drives my passion to, again, keep writing grants and keep looking for money and keep teaching kids, teaching students, uh, teaching them. Sometimes I, I find myself, even though I'm not a clinician, uh, talking to patients about what we have found out in the lab. Uh, and, you know, uh, they feel so good just to talk to someone that cares about the diseases they have and the life that they have had to go to go through, uh, you know, having kids with the disease or, or having spouses or, or themselves uh, with this uh, sometimes terrible diagnosis. So I think that definitely is what drives my passion. Mm -hmm. That is... That is extremely, extremely inspiring. And I think the work that you're doing is also extremely inspiring. So thank you so much for coming on to the Futures podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you and being able to speak with another Latino too, just in general. And so thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, sure. Thank you. And I'm happy to, to share my experience. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs>